0: verses 19 through 25, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. We looked at these two weeks ago, uh, these same verses before I left for, uh, for vacation. And uh, again, I want to say a word of appreciation to uh, Scott and to Todd for filling in in my absence. I've heard nothing but glowing reports and appreciation for them. And that is uh, it. always makes it a little easier to be away when you know the pulpit's going to be filled that well and that clearly with a proclamation of the gospel. So I, I thank them so much and thank you for hearing them and receiving them as what they are, pastors in this church and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ whom God has blessed you with having them here uh, to be a part of this fellowship and to continue in the, the strong ministry of the word. But we looked at these two weeks ago and I wanted to come back to them today for several reasons. One, there's a whole other dimension I want us to look at uh, as sort of the bulk of what we're going to talk about today, but also want you to hear and, and remember the things that we have talked about in here, especially if perhaps you were out that Sunday, because that was a fall break beginning Sunday, and some of you... Uh, strayed away as I strayed away last week and uh, did things of, of, of vacation nature. And so I want us to come back to it because it's too important of a passage uh, to fail to comprehend what, what God is saying through his word in this particular section. The whole section 8, 9, and 10 is dealing with that new covenant. In chapter 8, he took Jeremiah 31 and he, he defined for us the elements of the New Covenant. He said in that New Covenant that all who are in the Covenant will know Him. They'll not be those who are sort of quasi-related to the Covenant, who are in and out and and maybe will someday know God. And he said, you don't have to go around saying to people in the Covenant, know Him, for all will know Him. And all will be adopted into His family and all will be a part of this Covenant family and Covenant relationship. He also says in that, not only will you know Him, but you also will have your sins forgiven. That is a very important element of the new covenant because it's that sin that is standing between you and a relationship you and knowing God through Jesus Christ that sin is the barrier that sin is the problem and yet in the new covenant he says your sins will have been forgiven they will be cast away they will be put aside and they'll not be remembered against you ever again God will never come back and say well you know on second thought that was pretty bad what you did It was not just pretty bad. It was very bad, more than likely. But it has been covered with the blood of Christ. It has been covered in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory and victoriously the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to remember that. That is elements of this covenant into which we have now entered. Throughout the other verses that we've looked at up until this point, he's just amplified a bit more about how the Holy Spirit is testifying to us about this covenant. The Holy Spirit is saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after these days. I will put my laws upon their heart, and, and in their mi- on their minds I will write them. I mean, there's that, that not only knowing God, not only having sins forgiven, but there's that internal motivation of the Spirit of God at work in every single believer. That's why we struggle with sin, because sin is still present. And we struggle with it because the Holy Spirit is there within us, and the Holy Spirit is directing us and guiding us into righteousness and into God's truth, and yet that old sin that still indwells pulls us in the other direction. And there's always a tension there, always a tension there. A Christian is never satisfied in their sin because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's always that tension, there's always that struggle, And Paul deals with that in Romans 7, and we looked at that. We won't go back to there. But I want you to hear verses 19 through 25 as we read it again, and then as we talk about what the writer is saying here. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, We're going to look at that concept of flesh in depth in a moment. He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, that is, let us dwell upon, let us concentrate on how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as has been the habit of some, or is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, the day drawing near. This is God's Word. It's God's Word to us. We, we talked about two weeks ago that, that triad that appears in this passage that we most, most notably recognize as coming out of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, where Paul talks about the greatest of these is love. But there he talks about faith, and he talks about hope, and he talks about love. In this passage, the writer brings out those very same thing. In verse 22, he said, Let us draw near, that is, draw near to God's throne with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, trusting that what he has done and is doing is from him. And He is working it out in our lives so we can draw near to God, not fearful of of, of condemnation, not fearful of being rejected, not fearful of having our sins brought up against us again because it's by faith that we walk in Him. It's through faith on the basis of His grace that we know Him and we have that assurance to draw close to Him. And then He talks about in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope without any wavering. In other words, steadfast, holding fast, looking forward, not moving from side to side, not shifting like sand on a beach, but steadfastly looking forward to what God has promised us. That is the hope that of what we're waiting on. Hope is that assurance of things unseen, the scripture says. We'll talk about that later in this same book. But it's the assurance of things that we have not yet seen, but even as... as Horatio Spafford said in that that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, he said, you know, I look forward to the day when we walk by sight, not just by faith. But on this side, we're walking in great hope of the the truth of what God has promised. That's where we're pushing forward. That's what we're fixating on. That's where our concentration must be. And it's so easy to let things of this world distract us, isn't it? It's so easy to, to be thinking about the great promises of God in Christ Jesus, and yet because of the draw of the world, because of the draw of things, because of the draw of idols that we have stacked up all around us, it's easy for our attention to not be focusing on him, not be holding fast to that confession of our hope, but wavering just a bit from side to side. But he said, listen, don't do that. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on the hope because our God is faithful to secure you and to, uh, to, to see you through that, to bring you home safely by his grace. And then there's the, the concept of love in verses 24 and 25 where he says, so let us consider how to stimulate. Let us think about how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. It's interesting there that, that he concentrates or he tells us to concentrate on how to do that, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We tend to think sometimes that that's just sort of a natural thing to do. But the problem is, when we just follow after our natural love, if you will, we love those who are very lovable, we love those who are like us, we love those who we like being around, and that just becomes the only group that we focus upon. What, what the writer here is saying is you must focus upon how to stimulate the whole body, the whole body of Christ, especially in this local uh, expression of that body. How do we stimulate one another to love and to good deeds? How can I encourage you? to love somebody in here that you don't even know? How can I encourage you to care for somebody in here that you don't even know? And how can you encourage me to do the very same thing? Because that's our purpose of gathering. And he says, keep gathering. Don't, don't forsake gathering because you've got to gather to do that so that you carry out what God has called you to do. So there's those, that great three uh, triad there, faith, hope, and love, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, and the writer here talks about in the 10th chapter of Hebrews. He talked about, and he talks about two great possessions that we have here. I don't want you to miss that. There are two things he talks about you and I as believers who are in Christ Jesus that we possess. Okay, you ready for this? Number one, he says, Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. That means we have access to God. That's a great possession. We who are mere mortals, we who are, are flesh and blood, who, who have, can't even see God with our physical, visible eyes, the writer says, because you are in Christ and in this new covenant, then you have full access to the throne of God, you have full access to the presence of God through the blood of Christ. We enter in this holy place by the blood of Jesus. So what he did in cleansing us of our sin, he equipped us, he fitted us, he he made us worthy in his right, not in our own right, but because of his work, to enter into the presence of God, where we have no right to be, where we have no natural access to, but where because of his grace because of his sacrifice on the cross we can have access to god and then out of that we fo- flows that we have a great high priest you know we have a great high priest over the household of God, And, and that, that priest is our intercessor. It's our intermediary. He's the one that opens the way by his sacrifice. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. <coughs> Excuse me. What the writer is saying is that because of the work of Christ, in bringing about your relationship in this new covenant to God, because your high priest has gone before you, has entered in before you, and has opened the way, the veil, which is his flesh, you can now walk in, enter in, and come into the presence of God. We have access to God. We have a great high priest. And just that truth, as I started this, worship service this morning the call to worship and I talked about how the, the fact of, of sin is our barrier but Christ is greater than our sin and has overcome our sin if we are in Christ so that ought to draw us to worship what the writer here is saying is that, that this calls us to a life of worship verse 22 drawing near sincere heart faith our hearts sprinkled from an evil, evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water we are called to a life of worship I want you to understand more than anything else that what I do when I stand here behind this pulpit, when I open God's Word and start expounding that, that not only am I calling you to worship during this hour, not only am I saying this is what we do from 10.30 till whenever we're done, not only am I saying this is where we need to be and what we need to be doing at this time, but I want you to leave through those doors in a a few minutes, and I want you to go out of there with your minds and your hearts fixated upon God and go out into the world still worshiping Him. Still thinking about how great He is. Still thinking about the, the, the majesty of His name, the fame of His name, and take that Where you go? Because out of worship will flow evangelism. Out of worship will flow missions. Out of worship will flow love and good deeds. Because your focus is not upon the deeds that need to be done. Your focus is upon him who directs us to those deeds. It calls us to a life of worship. And and, and doctrine ought to lead us to worship. It's not some high pie in the sky kind of thing. It's It's something that's very practical when you understand it, and it changes your heart and leads you to worship. It's also a call to truth in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession without wavering. That confession is a confession of faith. Uh, Peter said it at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is a confession that we are to hold to without wavering. There are other confessions. Jesus is Lord. There's the confession we've been looking at on Sunday nights, uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed, as we've kind of broken that down and we're moving through that. That is a confession of faith, expressing the basic doctrines of the faith, and we're to hold fast to that because that is our hope. And, and then we're called to, to a, loving, a life of loving community in verses 24 and 25 where he says, Love one another, care for one another, stimulate one another, and press on. But I want to go back to verse 20. All of that was reviewed, by the way, if you weren't here. If you were here, I hope you recognized it as such. But I want to go back to verse 20. And I want us to hear his words here that are so clear. Uh, he has, we, we can draw near, we can have confidence to enter this holy place where God dwells by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. Now these Hebrew Christians, when they first heard that statement, he has inaugurated this way for us through the veil, they didn't immediately think of the flesh of Christ. I guarantee you. What did they think about? The veil in the temple. That, That he has inaugurated this way for us through the veil. Through the veil for us that we can walk through it into the holy place, into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, into the very throne of his grace, we can walk through that veil. Because on the day that he died, when he gave up his spirit and said, it is finished, the scripture tells us that the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where only the high priest could go, that veil was rent from top to bottom. It was torn in two. And free access was made into the Holy of Holies. But the writer of Hebrews says the real veil, that veil in the temple was merely a picture. That veil in the temple was merely a a, a symbol, if you will. The real veil is Jesus' own flesh. He's inaugurated for us to walk through the veil, a new and a living way through the veil. That is His flesh Since we have a great high priest, his flesh was our sacrifice on the cross. His blood was spilled for our redemption. His resurrection was that it might all be confirmed and and sealed. But what is the significance? Why does the writer, in the midst of talking about the new covenant, which is granted from Jeremiah's writings sort of a, a heavenly sort of thing, a spiritual kind of thing, why does he now come and say, but don't miss his flesh? You know, most preaching in many pulpits will, will never fail to recognize and proclaim the deity of Christ if they are indeed a gospel, Bible centered pulpit. They, they'll talk about the deity of Christ, and that's important because if God is not, if Jesus is not fully God, then quite honestly, there's no such thing as eternal life. There's been no life redeemed. John in 1 John 4 and 1 John 5 made it clear that the condition for eternal life is belief in Jesus' deity. And if you don't believe that he is God, then there is no eternal life to be had. Those who say he's just a good teacher, or he's just a prophet, or or he was was a, a great miracle worker, but he wasn't God. Have no access to salvation. Salvation is based on the fact that he is fully God. If he's not fully God, there's no salvation. Also, if he's not fully God, then sin is not conquered. Sin is still a sin is still winning. Sin, sin is still powerful and and getting more powerful every day. If he is not God, sin is not conquered, because only God can defeat sin and defeat Satan once and for all. You can't do it. But as John said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Great is he who abides in you by his Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Greater is he that is in you than he is that is in the world. So the world's God, Satan, the world's God's false gods, idols, cannot defeat you, cannot conquer you, but it's not because you're such a great person. It's because he's such a great God. But if Jesus is not God, that's not a reality. But but there's the other side of this. If if Jesus is not flesh, fully human, then first of all, he cannot adequately represent humanity. Humanity. He can't stand in our place. He can't be there on that cross in our place if he is not truly, fully human. Uh, Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 5. And and he couldn't take our punishment for sin. Romans chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's it's because of his humanity that he can stand in our place. He can be our representative. He, He can be our substitute and our sacrifice. If he is not God, I mean, excuse me, if he is not human, he can't adequately represent us. But secondly, if he is not fully human, he cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And the point of his sinless life has really no significance at all. But if you remember back in chapter 4 of Hebrews, as we looked at that just a few weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 15, the writer says, verse 14 first, Therefore we... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy, And find grace to help in our time of need. If he were not fully human, there would be no sympathizing. If he were not fully human, he would not have experienced the temptations in every way that we have. You you remember in in the wilderness when he was driven out after 40 days of fasting into the wilderness there. He fasted, and at the end of that, Satan came to him and said, You know, listen, what about you've been fasting 40 days? You're hungry? Why, you're the Son of God. You're divine. You're deity. You are God in the flesh. Look at those rocks. You can turn those rocks into bread and have a feast. And Jesus retorted to him that Scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. He was appealing there to the the lust of the flesh, the needs of the flesh. We hunger. He was hungry. He could have satisfied it with a... Tremendous miracle. But he said, no, that's not the point. The point is abiding in the truth and the word of God. He was tempted to meet his own needs in a very selfish way. Sounds human to me, doesn't it? Sounds like what I am tempted to do all the time. But then he took him up on the mountain and he said, look out over all of this. All of this will be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me, and I'll, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give you all these people. They will, they will acknowledge you. They won't reject you, and, and you'll, be, you'll be supreme above everybody. And, and Jesus said, but the Scripture says that man shall not bow down and worship anyone but the living God. He took him from the temple and to the pinnacle of the temple and said, look, jump, show these people who you are. Let them see who you really are. Just, just jump off, and man, they'll, and the angels from your father will sweep down, and, and they will lift you up, and they'll set you easily on the ground because you know, the Scripture says you won't even dash your heel. Satan can use Scripture too. Knows it sometimes better than we do. But Jesus said the Scripture says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, you're not to have presumptive faith. Those are really two contradictory terms. You're you're not to be presuming upon what God will do just so the masses will adore you. You're not to presume that God will take care of you when you're doing something absolutely stupid. Excuse me, I know you teach your kids not to use that word, but that's the theological usage of it. All right, you can explain that to them later. theological stupidity when we jump and tempt God I mean if, he, if, he, if he's not human he can't sympathize because he's not been tempted as we have and he can't understand what we're going through but, but the writer of Hebrews says he has and he is and he does sympathize with where we are and what we're going through So what does that mean? If he's truly God and truly man, if he's the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, fully human, fully divine, what does that mean? Well, since he is, it has some great truths for us. It, It means he understands completely our temptations and our sufferings. And since he never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever he never changes, he never wavers, then he is utterly dependable, he is completely sympathetic, and he's always available to help us in our time of need. He's always present. Ready to help us. Ready when we lean upon him, when we trust in him, when we walk with him, and we lean upon his mighty arm. He's always there to help us in a time of need. Not only that, since he's fully God and fully human, fully, fully human, fully divine, however you want to say it, he's the God-man, we can be assured that there is victory to overcome this world. We can have assurance that we can beat that besetting sin. We can have assurance that we can overcome that which is our greatest struggle and our, our greatest weakness and our greatest need. We have him who is the victor who can overcome it who will overcome it who will be there for our greatest need not only that we understand that there's there's no longer any real uh, loneliness or solitude in this life in this world since as the god man jesus is always with us <coughs> excuse me again he's always with us he's always present we have an eternal companion. Matthew twenty eight, verse twenty says, you know, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age, even unto the end of the world. Christian ought never really ought never be lonely, ought never feel isolated if they are focused on the hope and focused on the truth and focused on worshiping Christ, Jesus. There ought to be that sense of spiritual companionship that is always there. Closer than a brother. Closer than a mate. A real intimacy with God. If he's fully God and fully human, if it's his flesh, which is the veil by which we have walked through, as he tore the path, as he blazed the trail, for us to enter into the presence of God, there is a sense in which he has left us with the ideal human life to emulate. Now, that's not WWJD not what would Jesus do at all. But it is realized that he is a a model. He is an example. Now, he's not just an example. Those who take the example theory of the atonement are in gross error. But he does leave an example. Intellectually, we can grow in our knowledge of his profound teachings because he is present with us. Morally, we can mature in our character and becoming more like him. Emotionally, we can progress in appropriately effective responses to life's challenges because of who he is and because he's present. Volitionally, willfully, we can decide among choices what would best please him because his Holy Spirit indwells within us. Yes, we do make real choices guided by his Spirit. And relationally, we can enjoy a relative peace with God, with self, and with others. I I mean, there's this reality, there's this great truth that, that, that when we are in Him, resting in Him, abiding in Him, we have peace with God. And that peace with God leads to the peace of God and leads to peace with other people specifically brothers and sisters in Christ. But even more, it leads to a peace with self. Was it it Pogo, the old cartoon that said, we have met the enemy and he is us? Well, in Christ, that enemy is no longer an enemy. In Christ, we can make peace with that and rest in him in this new covenant relationship finally, because he is both God and man, fully, completely, 100% God, 100% man, we can be assured that he has and he will lead us victoriously out of death and into eternal life because of Christ's resurrection. That's the ultimate picture of his victory. That's the ultimate picture of what he has done to overcome. And it's God's way of saying everything he said, everything he did, everything he pointed to is absolutely true. But it's also our assurance that we can move not only from this life uh, living in this physical existence into death, but we can pass through death into eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love what Calvin said in, in his Institutes. He said this since neither says neither as God alone could he fill death nor as man alone could he overcome it he coupled human nature with divine that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of the one to death and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature he might win victory for us took both to bring about this new covenant. It took both for us to be redeemed. It took both for us to know what it means to be able to draw near with confidence, enter into the holy place with confidence, know his way, know him as our great high priest, and live a life that is centered on worship. Because what he did Gives us something to worship about. Does that make sense? I mean, when you, when you you know, for, for heaven's sake, don't hear this here and think, oh, that's really good. I'm glad I went to church today, heard that, and then walk out those doors and poof, it's gone. this is this is rich this is meaty this is important this is life as opposed to death and this is the great gift that he has given us in his son let's pray He had to come in the flesh for our redemption to be secured. He did come in the flesh. And He did secure the salvation of His people. It's what Paul talked about in Romans. In Romans chapter 8 those great verses when he said, For the law, the Spirit, the life of Christ, Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law, which is demanding our death, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, your word is so clear. so clear that we can walk in your spirit every day in this new covenant relationship. And Lord, because of that, we can know, as we sang earlier, that it is well with our soul. We can know that you made us your own. We can worship you as people of the risen King. We can know love divine that exceeds all other loves. Saying about all of that. Father, we pray that you will magnify it, that you will clarify it, and that you will draw us closer to yourself as we draw near to you. Thank you, Father, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.